0: Hello and welcome to Season 4 of The Coaching Bubble. We are delighted to be back. For our first episode, we're talking with Eddie O'Sullivan, former head coach of the Ireland National Rugby Team. Eddie talks about the importance of planning and preparation as a coach, how listening and learning from others helps develop you as a coach, and how coaches should give and receive feedback. You can subscribe to The Coaching Bubble podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud, and you can keep up to date with all things Coaching Bubble on social media at Coaching. A great episode to start, guys. I really enjoyed. Hope you do too. Uh, great to be joined today by Eddie O'Sullivan. Eddie, thanks a million. I uh, really appreciate your time, giving up your time for this. Um, so everyone will know who you are, um, but many I'm people... be surprised.
1: You know, <laughs> <I'm> surprised. <laughs> so,
0: yeah. Um, I I suspect, though, that Eddie, many people won't know that you're sort of rooted into the elite level coaching and maybe with your non-traditional background, if that makes sense. Maybe we start, jump in there and, and we'll see where the conversation takes us.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, I suppose it's funny how most people assume that I played rugby in school. Um, and a lot of people thought I went to a rugby playing school. Um, I didn't actually at all. Um, I was... Uh, I grew up in Yall and I went to school in Yall in on the CDS where, um, it was really any sports for GA hurling and football. Uh, now I'm a lot older than you might think. Hopefully. Um, but I'm, uh, I grew up in the sixties in, and in primary school, uh, you couldn't play over you couldn't play foreign sports. The ban, the GA band was in, I actually got banned from playing GA when I was 10. <laughs> Cause I played a soccer match on a Sunday with you all, uh, on tens. So, um, and uh yeah i got to the principal's office another lad and we were asked did we play a soccer match on the sunday and we said yeah we did and we were banned straight away after school leagues uh, which it's a bit of a setback but i i got into rugby because my uncles played and your rugby club had actually underage structure well before rugby was underage you now the crazy about it is uh, when i played under tens it was 15 aside full on fully 16-man scrums i played hooker against my brother a lot of times to beat the lard out of each other but it was like there was no mini rugby, but y'all are quite progressive there in on the raid section when I was ten. Um and I played rugby. That's where I got into rugby, my uncles played, it was a junior club. Played my initial years in all But um yeah, so I uh, most people assume I'm from Limerick maybe because I played with Gary Owen and Munster. Um, but actually from all and most people assume I went to a rugby playing school and I didn't. They went to a CBS school. So I came to the I came to the roots of the, the club game rather than the schools game. Um that would have been you would have been regarded as probably not the finished product then when you got into club rugby. Like I played m- my first few years at club rugby was at my own club, Yawley. I made the first team when I was about 15. And I played through till I was 17 or 18. And then I was in college with Tony Ward, and he convinced me to, to go to Gary Owen and play a bit. Now, I was an out-half in, in, in Yawle and, and a full-back. So when I went to Gary Owen, I was asked what position I played. I said winger because Tony Ward was the out-half. I was not going to get Tony Ward's place. He was on the Irish team. So I moved to the wing. Um... I was always interested in, 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 in fitness as well. So when I went to Tormann College um, and played in Gary I, I involved myself in fitness training as well. I was actually the, the yes, strength and conditioning coach for the Irish team in the 1991 World Cup. Now, people might remember that in the famous try by Gordon Hamilton that nearly beat Australia in the, semif- in the quarterfinal or the person into a semifinal. But, uh, yeah, so I was involved in fitness and all that. So, yeah, that's how I got into rugby when I went to college. P, I suppose I became a teacher, and I think being a P teacher is almost uh, automatic gravitation towards coaching. You know, like it's, it's the same thing, really. Uh, so my route into coaching came that way. Like I remember started coaching first when I was only in my early twenties in a club called Monave, I coached mini rugby. of course the first team. Um, they played on a Sunday. Mini rugby Saturday morning. I used to leave mini rugby and go to Gary Owen and play in the afternoon. So I was always coaching guess, really, in my early twenties. So. If, been through the the, the mail that way like right up through underage structures into club rugby into underage rugby up into schools rugby senior rugby so I've pretty much coached at every level of the game in rugby from under 10s up to senior international which is great experience to have i suppose and i enjoyed every bit of it different times
0: and eddie when you say there that um let's say people assumed you came up through the school's ranks and stuff like that. Is that just the normal way to go in terms of, is that a prestige thing to play for the school and then go on for club and country type thing?
1: It's, it's, it's the more traditional route, you know. Um, like, the exceptions to the rule in terms of... I never played for Ireland. Though. I came reasonably close at one stage in the 80s. I was playing the wing for Munster. I would have been not far off. But I think the time you had people like Trevor England... Uh, Keith Crossham were on the Irish team. Moss Finn was strong. Well, he played in the wing for Munster. Moss was on the other wing, you know. And that that team was a very strong Irish team. They won a triple crown. They won two triple crowns, in fact, in the 80s. Um, So, like, um, the point I'm making, really, is I came the non-traditional route. Now, the guys who played for Ireland that came the non-traditional route, the obvious ones in my time were Shane Horgan and uh, John Hayes, you know, who guys who were mainly... Gaelic footballers, and then decided, and then you would, uh, you know, so most internationals, so that's changing gradually. But the schools game has an advantage over the club game because I suppose, uh, the schools game they focus on it as part of the school, nearly part of the school curriculum in some schools, but they train a lot more. They train two or three times a week uh, in school, um, maybe four times a week if it's senior cup, or five times a week when you get to the series end of the business in a big rugby school, and um course, the clubs are only going to t- two nights a week. And then you have teachers coaching, you know, who have a background in teaching, whereas the guy coaching the other 16s in the club might be the local plumber or the local solicitor, you know. So they don't have... Now, there are a few who have done a lot of work in that, trying to educate coaches. But you're always going to find that probably the players that come through the school system, are probably better equipped to go on into the higher edge of the game, but there are exceptions, and the more exceptions we have, the better. You know, and the RFU, to be fair, have recognized that years ago. I was a development officer back in 1988 to 91. My, my region was Sligo down to Nina and to Limerick, and used to go around schools and clubs educating coaches. And you know, that was it. There was four of us in the country. Um, and so, you know, really, the RFU know that, but it's always going to be a slightly tougher route for a club player. Uh, to come through to international level but it's still when you get a diamond you get a diamond like John Hayes or Shane Horgan and there's a few more probably Like I don't know as much about but yeah so I came through that non-traditional route but at the same time um, once you get into senior rugby and then you can find your way on a provincial team you get the opportunities then maybe to go a step further Um, so yeah initially uh, my whole focus as a young player was trying to play for Ireland and missed didn't get that i got from the ireland day team once and there's very few games as well a lot less internationals less opportunities the provincial team only played about four or five times a year so your opportunities to so that's all changed now you know like i mean back then if you got 50 caps from for one you know you'd have to be a legend whereas today you get 50 caps from Munster and, and you might need to be making a team regularly and that's just the way the game has changed but it's a good thing too. Rugby is now in a different, complete different place.
0: Yeah, and um just in terms of that non-traditional route, and I'll come to the, the your time as Ireland manager in a, in a few minutes. But you also went on to to manage the US team. um How was that much? How, I suppose I'm curious on a couple of things. How much of a culture shock was it going into? Let's say it's not a non-traditional sport over there, as in american football is the big one and rugby maybe maybe looked down upon and then is it is that a case of you had to adapt your whole coaching style then when you do go into a, a situation like that
1: well i i was i was i coached america on two occasions one in the late 90s that was 97 98 99 up to the 99 World Cup. and the second time more recently was uh 2009 10 11 into the 2011 world cup but the first time around i was only an assistant coach um and funnily enough i coached the forwards um not the backs so my people associate me being a backs coach but one of the things i decided when i was very young and i wanted to go into coaching is that if i was going to be a head coach i'd have to learn how to coach backs and forwards you just couldn't be a Baxter forwards coach. So I was lucky when I was doing the fitness for Ireland back in, in the 91 World Cup, I spent a lot of time with the forwards. Kieran Fitzgerald was the coach and had a very good line-out in scrum. And I spent a lot of time just standing around watching that or standing scrum half at line-outs and listening and paying attention and, and, and picking players' brains. So then I went on to coach Connacht. I actually was head coach to Connacht. I coached the Connacht forwards. So I tried to spread my knowledge of the game. So when I went to America, I was a forwards coach up to the, world cup in in 99 but i was assistant coach and that to me was an incredibly valuable learning uh i suppose opportunity for me which i took a lot of learning out of america in terms of coaching now people might say oh well they don't know much about rugby in america and yeah it's still even you know a minority sport and um, it's semi-professional now even in the league but back then in the 90s it was completely amateur um but what, they, what what people don't probably get is that coaching in America, as is coaching anything, football, you know baseball, basketball, coaching is highly developed in America. So I was able to plug in, and I do, there's a very good coach at the time called Jack Clark. He's been the coach at Cal Berkeley rugby program for years. They've been national champions, God, I don't know how many times, at collegiate level. And I learned a lot from him in terms of being a head coach and managing players. And the big thing was communication. Like I remember my first week there, um, we were having we'd have the huddles after you know we did a session at line or we did a huddle after we did, you know, an attack or defence. And um, basically, I remember leaving session one. Then when we were going back, he said so he drove me back in his car because we we're in Berkeley. We we're just around the corner from where we we're staying. And he said to me, at one stage of the car, when are you going to start coaching? He said to me, and I was kind of shocked, you know, jeez, I thought it was, you know. And I said, what do you mean? And he says, you know, you've got to get in more and start talking more. And I said, yeah, but I don't want to interrupt anybody. He says, that's harsh shit, he said. Like, I didn't bring you all the way from Ireland, so you could listen to other people. He said, start coaching, He said, You know, and um, I remember as well, he brought me down to watch, um, it was kind of a, a watershed moment for me. He brought me down to watch the Cal Berkeley football team training. And it was like spring training and they, they were doing like a very simple drill. They had an attack on defense, and it was a one snap scrimmage. So you snapped the ball and you ran the play and then it stopped. And they were, they were, they were doing passing plays. So snap the ball, pass it, incomplete or complete either way. But it took like three seconds. And then there was like, looked like probably 15 coaches descended on the groups, there was whistles blown everywhere. And they we're talking to guys animated and and uh, it looked like looked like organized chaos to me but i said he the point was that american kids grow up and they have multiple coaches and they learn to take a lot of information on very quickly and then after like 30 seconds the whistle went the place cleared like out and then the next play was snapped and then there was another advance of coaches again. So, he he said, like, the point he was making to me was, like, you have a limited time on a rugby pitch to get your message across. And if you're going to be pussyfooting around, you know, worrying about cutting somebody off, or he said, this is all part of maximizing your communication. And in America, they do that. like, And players, if you coach American players, they're very good at taking information on. Because by and large, you probably have professional coaches from high school up to college and so on. So it was a kind of a watershed moment. And at the time then, you saw that, uh, here, the, the leader here actually in this part of the world was people who people who criticised this man a lot but he won a World Cup and I a huge time from his Clive Woodward he revolutionized coaching here the way he started getting you know he basically got in specialist coaches he got a defense coach he got a scrum coach you know and so on and built a staff like you see in the NFL like you see in the NBA and that time people were giving out oh too many coaches too many voices you know which again completely missed the point so when I became Irish coach uh, we had a staff of about five uh, and I had to grow that to a staff of nearly 15 very quickly because I needed specialists like we didn't have a defense coach when I took over Ireland Um, we didn't have a breakdown coach we didn't have a kicking coach really we had a guy come in and out so that was a huge takeaway for me in America two things having specialized people and then managing managing them so that they can get the maximum information to the players in the minimum time, so the learning curve is steeper. So when you think about it, it, makes sense. But when you're like, it's not traditional. I remember playing rugby and nobody could talk while somebody else was talking because you know you have to hush people if they're their mouth. So it's completely different. And then the, the players in Ireland when I was coaching had to make that adjustment as well, that they had to be able to deal with numerous coaches, not one coach, maybe doing four or five coaches on different aspects of their game. So yeah, it was to me that that American experience back in ninety nine was was extraordinarily valuable to me in terms of um how I, I I developed my own coaching philosophies in terms of communication and supporting the players. Uh so yeah that was that to me was a huge moment and I, I learned so much uh, from it. Um, And again, I learned some rugby stuff too. Like they were thinking beyond the box. We used to do a lot of work on defense at the time. We were always trying to figure things out defensively, which wasn't done a lot in Ireland. Not until Clive Woodward won the World Cup, and it was you know what is Clive doing? And he had a defense coach, and so on and so on and so on. Every started mirroring that. So I, I I came back after the ninety nine World Cup, and um, it was around the time that, that Clive was starting to build his his team. You know, so. I took a lot out of that, I must say, and I thought it was a kind of a. And we're, everyone's doing it now; it's not. It's just standard operating procedure now, which is interesting. Like over twenty years on.
0: Yeah, I really like the, the the point about coaching being very highly developed in the states. And for me, the big big thing about that is coaching is a is real valued profession in the states. If that makes sense.
1: Oh yeah, it's all, it's it's it sounds ridiculous because, uh, in America, it's it's very revered position in America, and people say that's a lot of. Cods wallop, you know, but that's their culture around sport. And whether you like it or not, you have to think America does sport pretty well. You know, like when you're professional sport, like you look at the, the the big four sports they have, they do them pretty well in terms of people want to watch them and the guys who play in it make a lot of money. So, yeah, it, it, they, they do revere coaches. And even the giveaways, when I talk to players who I've coached, even if I met them now years later in America, they still call you coach. Hey, you coach. And I say no, no, call me Eddie. No, they can And I brought a I brought a guy in with the Irish team from America. He was a he was a trainer, stroke physiotherapist. They have a different system in America for training their physios and trainers. They do both fitness and you know physiotherapy in terms of uh, rehabbing, but they also do prehabbing. And we had a lot of injuries. I remember going to the World Cup in um, not the World Cup. Sorry, we were going on our first tour to New Zealand in two thousand and two, and we we're missing eight players. Um, no, six of them had soft tissue injuries. They didn't get hit. They just broke down. Hamstring, groin, calf. I was saying, Jesus, like, and it's the end of the season it used to happen, I said, we've got to do something better than this. So I remember there did a lot of search and found a guy called Brian Green, who came and worked here with the Irish team for years. Worked for, I guess, nearly 10 years. Went back to America, worked with the Sevens. But Brian came out of Pittsburgh. He worked with Penn State. He worked with the Steelers a little bit came in and he was into prehab as well. He he found players with potential injuries, soft tissue injuries, and we worked. So our soft tissue injuries plummeted under him. Uh, and he worked with the other physios as well. But uh the funny thing about him is he could never call me out and be coach, No matter how many times I told him, he just <laughs> couldn't do it. That's very funny. But uh, yeah, but he that was a, That was another salient moment again for me is injury prevention. And it's all part and parcel. Now, I think there's a lot more that goes on. But Brian came in he did a, he actually did a phd in UCD studying the three basic different ways you could do a sidestep like he, they call it cutting in America not sidestepping they call it mm-hmm. cutting but different cuts and uh, he did his phd in UCd but you know it's again it's bringing an another bank of knowledge into a professional sport like rugby that Maybe didn't exist before i didn't do it for any other reason except <laughs> it made my job easier and helped me to get a better outcome you know so you know but you see that kind of spreading a lot more now
0: yeah and no it's really interesting and i just want to come back to a point that you made that you talked about uh when you first took over ireland you had a staff a staff of five and you increased that to 15 mm. so curious here now so you have a a, a squad of maybe whatever i don't know 30 or 40 players that varies. You There you go you,
1: you usually end up when it when it gets the rubber hits the road you're talking about maybe 35 guys you know or, or 30 depends and but when you start out you might have 40 or 45 uh, so yeah. but usually the the, the number is about 30 really that's when the rubber hits the road if you're on tours right? 31 32 and if you're in a six nation so yeah it gets down to that eventually
0: Yeah. So my question is, right, you have a a squad of players, be it 35, 40, whatever it may be that you have to manage and you have to to make sure and try and keep as happy as possible and try and keep them developing. But now you also have to keep a backroom team of 15 and you Mm. also keep them pushing them Mm -hmm. on and and making sure everyone's communicating is on the same page and stuff. And that must have been challenging.
1: Not really challenging in a sense, but again, you had to manage it. On the, and again, I learned that in America. The first time it was with the Eagles uh, in America. We had a staff meeting every morning at breakfast. We we came down to breakfast, but it wasn't breakfast; it was a staff meeting. And we went through the 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 the, the agenda for the day, what was on, the t- what was to be done, and then we broke down what's in training and what's going to be done. And it was really just a checkup to see everything was okay. Because when I took over Ireland, and we ended up with you know. 14 or 15 staff what we do is every Sunday we would sit down right and we would literally go through the week hour by hour by hour by hour by hour right from and it was actually we nearly ironically the best way to do it sometimes was to do reverse engineer start at a kickoff and work backwards right and then there was everything that went on every day so the schedule for every day was drawn up and then within the schedule, there was different things. So there was maybe fitness in the afternoon. That had to be discussed. The other thing that was um, uh, was obviously training itself. That had to be discussed. What equipment was needed, how long to take, bus trips, time for meals, that, You know the whole thing down to what they'd be eating and all this, on and on and on. So the, whole, the thing about that, the whole staff sat down. And I would chair the meeting as the head coach. And we would go through everything. It would take about two and a half hours, three hours on a Sunday evening. But that meant when we, left, when we broke up that meeting on Sunday, we had an almost hour-by-hour hour plan for the week. Now, would that plan change? Almost inevitably it would change. But you were adjusting a plan. You weren't redrawn. You were tinkering with it. And here was the thing, which is probably a lot of people initially found difficulty as staff, is when we sat around that table, everybody was sitting there as an equal partner to what was going on. So if we were discussing something, that it's something to do with your area of area of responsibility, whether it was fitness, whether it was injuries, whether it was lineouts, whether it was equipment, whether it was menus, whether it was bus survival time. We went through all that. And if there was anything there that was potentially problematic, you had to flag it straight away. And anybody could show in and say, I don't agree with that. And it's like, it could be something like, the, the, at the time, the forward coach tonight, I of might say, Oh, I'm definitely going to scrimmage on Tuesday and we need a machine. And at the time now, when you see the facilities they have now, like uh, it's just extraordinary. We were like nomads. We were always looking for training pitches, went all over the place, trying to avoid traffic and get the team to training pitches. So it was spending an hour on the bus, you know, wasting time an hour on the bus. So we'd be training everywhere. We ended up down in St. where we used to train in Ternure, we trained down in Nace. You know, like it was we were like a circus, you know. But the thing was for example, a small glitch could be like Nilo says I want to scrummage on Tuesday morning and Rala, who's the the baggage master, says, Oh, the scrum machine is still up in turnure. It's got to, I've gotta get that scrum machine to turn to to Jared's and Bray on Tuesday morning and can that be done? If he says no it can't be done, then Nilo, we've got to reschedule the scrum. So all this stuff was trashed out. Now, when we left that room, what I didn't want during the week is any surprises. So if we actually got to Gerald's, and there was no scrum machine there, Raleigh's ass was in a sling, you know, because he knew that too. So that was how it worked. Everybody worked together as a team to make sure that everything happened. that week. The last people we wanted to, this commode put out were the players. They had enough in their play to get ready for a test game. So everything we did around them was all about giving them the best possible preparation for the best possible performance on a Saturday. And then they knew they had to go out and perform. There was no excuses, you know? So that's how it works, you know?
0: And Eddie, just on that, so there's loads of people listening now and they're listening to the detail that you're going into there in terms of equipment and meals and diets, dietary requirements and all that. And obviously most people listening, I would say the majority of people listening won't be uh, at elite level coaches. So that planning and detail, like how important is that for you? And even if you bring it back to your days as a development officer, as a club coach, uh, how how important is that planning for you? And and is there any, let's say, could you give a practical t- a practical example of, of what you you would you wish you knew then, uh, what you know now if you knew it back then that you would you would love to give that advice to yourself around that planning and preparation piece?
1: Yeah, probably the the other thing I did. <clears throat> um, and I think oh, I think I will say like the, the further down the game, they were talking about top-end professionalism. So like once you get down to the club game and guys are amateur and that, you can't run a regime like that. It's not possible. You don't have 15 staff. You don't have constant access to the players. Guys get there Tuesday and Thursday. You know, so you, you, so you, your demands have to be more realistic. Uh, but that's, that's probably obvious. I probably need to say that. But anyway, the thing that I – the counterbalance to that actually – Which I thought was really important is we set up what you said a senior players group, which every club every team has now a senior players group, and their job was then to give me feedback about what was going on. So you had the yin and the yang: you, the staff, trying to do the best, and the players giving you feedback. Because when the game is over, we were giving them the feedback. Very (laughs) good. Roles reversed. So, like for example, again it could be like you know. the, the players might come to me and say senior players, now th- these are guys who are kind of leaders in the group and you're building a leadership group as part of that. It's, it's the advantage of having a senior player group. You're building a leadership group, which is very important on the field because you're not in the field. Mm-hmm. That's another discussion. But like these guys come back to me and say like, you know, maybe Paul O'Connell come to me and say, Oh, you know what? Training done a bit long today. Lads our legs are ver- legs are very heavy. So I, I have a, I didn't have a coaching meeting with the coaches that evening maybe or before dinner, and I'd say, look, lads' legs are a bit heavy. We're going to do this tomorrow. We're going to do 40 minutes of this. We're going to have to cut that back to 20. And so I'd say, yeah, okay. So that feedback from Paul, or it might be, you know, it might be something like, you know, uh, drink on my company and say, like, the lads are giving out, like, the food was cold last night for dinner, whatever way it was, cock in the kitchen. I have to go to the, get somebody. To, to the managers to go to the kitchen and say, "Listen, the food is cool. Like so, it was kind of this constant feedback. Now they had to be able to come and criticize me and say, "Like that session was long. I don't think that's right. That won't work." This, and I had to be able to take that criticism based on the fact that if I didn't know, we're just going to continue to do the wrong thing. So, I didn't. When I would have been a younger coach, I I probably didn't or you didn't know for sure the value of having that senior player group which again everybody talks about it like it's common practice it wasn't common practice but building a senior player group that is a good barometer for you as to how things are going and you know that, that that's part of management people are able to come and talk not just tell you how great things are but tell you when things aren't going so great that's all it's like running a team that's going well as you know is, is great it's fantastic couldn't be good but the truth of the matter is everything is Everything is not right all the time. There's always something wrong. Now, you want to keep that to a minimum and you want to keep the things that are wrong as small as possible, but you're always juggling a little bit. But the best feedback you get sometimes is from your players. And they're not right all the time. Like, yeah, they used to have to say, well, okay, I take your point, but this is my decision. And we're doing it. Like, simple stuff. I remember we used to travel international games. Guys would hate it dressing. In, in their number ones, collar and tie, blazer, the whole thing. And I remember it was, it was constantly coming to me, going, oh, can we wear tracksuits and can we chill out? And I was saying, no, you can't. And because I know myself, you let a bunch of guys wear tracksuits and some will have them on, some will have them off. Some will have them tied around their waist. Some will have baseball caps on sideways backwards. And I said, look, we're going through an airport. This is the Irish rugby team. We're going to look like a professional outfit. We're not going to look like rag ball rovers on a, on off the weekend. I don't care if it's uncomfortable. Wear the freaking suits and shut up, you know. And that was it. And they go, okay, and on, all right, we, see we, are we still don't like it. And I said, yeah, I don't like it either. I have wearing suits. You know, it's not my, my normal dress. So that sort of feedback, you, you don't always do with the players, but they have a chance to voice their opinions. Now, that builds a very strong bond between the players and the staff because they feel they're being heard. So that, to me, is a big – that communication system is a big part of managing people.
0: Yeah, I imagine that bond is like people trust each other a lot more because they feel like everyone has, like what you said earlier on, that equal voice at the table. Sure, that's it. That that trust then, it it becomes hugely important then when, as you said, you're not on the pitch, but they're trusting you to make the right decisions for the team. I, I wanted to ask a question on that. So you mentioned communication a couple of times and the importance of it. Um I'm always amazed at watching rugby on TV and and uh, to see the coaches up in the stands uh with a microphone and and some of his coaches around them and then uh I suppose how do the mess, do, do, how do those messages get relayed to the field to the field to the players and is it a, is there ever a case where t- things can be uh, miscommunicated or stuff gets crossed wires yeah. or do, do you have a strategy in place to try and avoid that
1: Well again you see this all has developed over time. There was a time when I remember coaching all Ireland league back in the nineties and you were not allowed to talk to the team at all as a coach at halftime. Nothing. You were not allowed to speak as a coach. What was, it was,
0: what, what was the rationale for that? It
1: was just the way rugby was. The coaches coached the team. And then when the team took the field, the coach stood back. Okay. That was it. it was, people don't remember that. Like, so if you were shouting stuff, to Onto the field, like do this, do that. The referee come over and say, if you don't stop talking, I'll send you over here. Yeah, it's true. Back in the 90s. Like, for example, like the only sometimes the only people who got on the field to have time were the physios and carrying a bottle of water. And um, the referees would actually watch that nobody else came in. I remember we used to write notes and stick them in the trays of oranges. <laughs> that was the only way, and then of course, if the oranges were extra juicy, the fucking juice would run, and the note would be all yeah, I swear, you're you're laughing. This is this is reality. Like this is all our league back in the nineties, and then it kind of loosened out, and you were able to get on the field at halftime, and then they started allowing your radio on. You know, I remember there was a there was a big uh, furore during the World Cup, after the three World Cup, because they were suspected that Clive Woodward. Had put a radio mic in a water bottle, and Martin Johnson was able to speak into the water bottle and they could exchange. So that's how that's only going back 2003. So now it's all out in the open. The other thing is now they have more access to more information. The coaches, I remember when we were trying to do the first time, we were trying to get a live feed of games so I could look at something that went wrong in replay and see, oh shit, we're getting caught at pillar here uh, defensively, and I could get the fix in. Um because I I was sure about it. Um we couldn't run that because Wi-Fi was, was kind of didn't, like like Wi-Fi back then was like five G as now. Like it was on its way but it hadn't arrived. So we get into Lands on Road, the old Lands on Road, and there was supposed to be Wi-Fi, but it didn't work. Like you had your screen there, you got your feed, and it froze. Just froze. You just couldn't. So in in essence there was Wi-Fi, but it didn't work. So you were depending on what you saw with your your own eyes. To, to put together messages and try and get them in. And then here's a funny one, actually. I remember we were in Argentina back in, I think it was 2000. I was only assistant coach. We are playing Argentina in Buenos Aires, and um, they were using a blitz defense. And David Humphreys is our half, and they were just flying up and knocking the crap out of us. And the only person I a message him was our team doctor, right? So it wasn't his fault. He was a doctor not a rugby coach. So I remember telling him something like I said on the radio. So I said, Mick, go in and tell him uh, they're they're yeah they're something looks like they're blitzing stand deeper. Like actually very brief messages. They're blitzing stand deeper. Tell Holmes." So he went out and when he got out there, he said to Holmes, "Eddie said they're blitzing stand flatter." He got I, he got it completely wrong. And I remember watching the game and and nothing and I said I remember saying after the game to Holmes well, why didn't you stand deeper? He says, how do you mean stand deeper? I said, I told Mick, like, he's told me to stand flatter. So I had a doctor trying to deliver a rugby message and it just, you know, wasn't, it was, and he was on a radio to me in a crowded stadium. He was on the side of the pitch. I was up in the stand. I was assistant coach. So the communication systems now are way better and they're more formalized and everyone accepts it, which is right. I mean, you see in America, you know, the, the coaches get to coach. Now, that's a whole mindset change in rugby. Back in, you know, go back to 2003, and, and there was all the instructions. They thought that Clive was sport- beating the Martin Johnson on a radio mic, you know, in his water bottle. My point is, so what? <laughs> you know, let's just get on with it, lads. Just say something missing, you know. And um, so things have changed, you know, like um, things have changed, and for the better, I think.
0: Yeah, it's gas as you say that now, and and I remember that controversy actually, and it was on. I think it was on the front page of the paper at the time, and it's like. <laughs> what's the big deal it's a coach talk oh, yeah. when you when you explain right, it like you
1: go back 10 years before that and you're sneaking in notes and and play on a tray of oranges i hope they're not too juicy <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's ridiculous like this is for the all ireland league you know like the, nas- the national championship
0: <laughs> yeah okay um so we talked a lot about coaches and and the role of coaches and um you, you you mentioned a couple of times that you learned an awful lot when you went across to the states and the different setup there coaching in Ireland has come on a long way in the last the last probably decades to two to two decades and um, what do you think of the, the state of coaching in Ireland now I know we see an awful lot of let us say high profile ex players gone off to France or or other countries to maybe mm. get their experience and tend to be coming back now are we getting better at this are we getting better at coach education or how do you think we are?
1: Oh, yeah we are I think I think coaching. Um, well, what happens is when the game goes professional, everything changes. Like it's everything becomes the pressure of time and the pressure of results. Like everything has to to ratchet up. So you get bigger staffs, you get more complex communication systems, and the game changes. Like if you watched, you go back and watch a game on those, you know, rugby goals. You used to get on TG Car and you watch a game in the nineteen. Seventies, you begin to watch. What are you watching? Is it really rugby? You know, it's so different. So the game itself has changed. To the demands of the game have changed. The quality of coaching, the quality of playing, it's just different. Just different uh, topic, or different, different uh, animal altogether. So yeah, that has improved. um There's not that many coaching jobs in Ireland at a high level. There's really f- five head coaching jobs in Ireland. The four provinces and, and the Irish job. So it's very hard to get a gig. Um, so it's not. not and it's good for people to go overseas. I mean, I know guys are going to France, which is good. I went to America. I found that really good. Um, I think it's good for fellas to break out and go off somewhere and, and learn a different culture, a different way of doing things. Um, so all that's positive. But, yeah, I think coaching in Ireland is has improved a lot. There's more. Like, I see even now the underage coaching, like the standard coaching underage, because there are a few who have invested so much money in coaching coaches of young players. And the big, the big development here is like, the caliber of rugby player coming out of school is rugby is just off the charts. Like they're just ready to roll, and they going into academies, which are again, like when I was back in in, in my time in in the, in the noughties, the academies were getting going and getting started. They were finding their feet. They weren't as refined. They're much more refined now. So they get these high caliber young players up coming out of school. They put them into a highly refined academy and then they spit them out the academy and they're ready to play early test rugby. Like, so many young fellas coming out of the academies now. And that's not just what the academies are doing. I think the schools are playing a huge part in that. So if you watch you watch a really good schools game in Ireland, it's like, it's top class. Like, an Irish school's players are as good as you get in the world. Like, we could play the New Zealand schools tomorrow or the Australian schools or the English schools. We'd be fine, you know. So, the schools are doing a phenomenal job. Then the academies are much... Better now. At, they're much more streamlined at getting the best out of these lads, and you know we're producing really, really good talent. So that's how we're able to maximise our ability as a rugby nation, even though we're you know a fourth choice sport in this country of four million people. But here's the interesting thing about that: if you look at the other amateur sports below rugby in Ireland, like Gaelic games, um, they've been really smart as they have actually taken. Huge learnings out of rugby. They, whatever they always watch what rugby players are doing, and they 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 translate it into Gaelic games. Like look at the professional, the professional attitude of, of Gaelic footballers and hurlers now in men's and women's uh, hurling and camogie or camogie and and football and whatever. The the caliber of preparation they go through, it's like there. You would say now that these county teams are at a level of preparation now. That's way ahead of what rugby players would be at international level twenty years ago or more. Like it just shows you how how the the, the growth of coaching and development has spread around the country in every aspect. Soccer as well.
0: No, hundred percent. I, I fully agree. Like, um I know I said earlier on I don't the coach is not as valued, certainly yet anyway, as as in countries like America. But I think we're getting a lot a lot better. And I actually think the last year, um, and, and even now with, with the pandemic that uh, people are seeing the value and the skill set that teachers and coaches have and are put, there's an awful lot more appreciation. And just hopefully, hopefully when everything gets back to normal and everything's open and all sports are back, that we'll see parents and, and, and kids embrace that because uh, I think they need it going forward. Um listen eddie uh we ask everyone who we have on we ask three questions um so some of them you may you may be uh touching on stuff you've covered already but it's, that's no harm um so the first one is what does the term successful coach mean to you
1: very simple answer to that is whoever you're coaching that you have the ability to maximize their potential so can you maximize the potential of the people you're coaching and that applies to everybody, whether you're coaching on the ten side or you're coaching an international national team. Because um that's all you can do really, is get the take their potential and maximize it. Um so like if you all sorry, if you're coaching, the obvious one is in athletics. I'm coaching a sprinter. Um, you know, they're never gonna win an Olympic gold because they're never gonna run a, a nine seven or something, no But maybe they can win an Irish an Irish uh, national championship or where a European medal. But because but that's the best you're ever going to do is there. So that's all you can do as a coach. So um yeah, maximize the potential of the people you're coaching. That's your only ambition. And you the then that puts the onus on you to be the best coach you can be. Because if you're not the best coach you can be, you're never going to be able to maximize the potential of the person you're coaching. So it's kind of a that's the way it works in my view. It's the same for everybody, no matter who, where or when you're coaching.
0: No, I like it. Nice, simple answer. Um, what is the best book, resource, podcast, whatever you want uh, that you'd recommend to to coaches? And that could, this can be several different things. We'll uh, we'll put links up to anything you recommend to uh, to anyone listening.
1: Well, there's so much stuff out there. Um, I, I've never been an ad, I've never been kind of someone who's been constantly grabbing books and reading, and and doesn't mean I haven't read books or looked at things. Um, for me, it's always been about um, trying to get more information. So I, I would cherry pick stuff from everywhere, you know, wherever I could find it. I, I don't go down and say, this is the one you have to read. Every, all the answers are there. Because the be answer I don't think all the answers are any one place. It's kind of a misguided thing. This is the definitive book, you know, on hang gliding. You know, there's nothing else you necessarily need to know. And I say, hang gliding has going to be anything. There's no such book for rugby, or know that, or coaching. So you're always getting, you always need to have a broad mind and things people say that you disagree with is the best reason to read more about it. And maybe you still disagree at the end. Or maybe you go, you know what? You know, uh, <laughs> some of the best advice I got is, is maybe um, is <laughs> in a clubhouse at 11 o'clock on a Saturday night after a game, and some for the, like three sheets, and the wind comes up, and he says, "Do you know what I think?" <laughs> and usually, you're, 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 you should bring that. Like, and he might say something. And ninety-nine times a hundred, is absolutely asinine. But one time over a hundred, the guy goes something, and you go, "Yes, there's something in that." Like, and I would say, a stop clock is right even twice a day, you know. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so, like, you never know. So, keep him open mind. And don't go down one rabbit hole as this is the answer to everything. Just keep cherry-picking. You're in, you're in this massive orchard, you know, of different things, and you cherry-pick what works for you or what suits you. And sometimes you're right and sometimes you're wrong. But if, if you kind of get blinkered, what oh, that's really a bad thing in coaching to get blinkered. Uh, always keep an open mind. Look everywhere you can. You know, borrow, steal, pilfer. Play your eyes, do whatever you want. It's, your, it's you, there's nothing wrong with it, you know. So I'm always looking for stuff, you know. That's to me is the, that's the best resource you have, is you're you're being inquisitive about the game. And the thing about that is to be inquisitive, you have to have a passion for it. If you're not a, if you're not passionate, you won't bother. So like I I never like I sit down i i sit down on the weekend there and watch the international so I could be watching honey and cup games with a, a notepad and I'd write stuff down. Like I see something. And they go into three categories, like, you know, geez, that that really a dumb thing to do. Almost never, I'm remember never to try that. Okay. <laughs> and another one is really that that's that's really smart. But maybe if you did it a little bit differently, it could be better. It's nearly there. And the third one is is, geez, why didn't I think of that? <laughs> and then what you're looking for, you know, like I didn't think of that. I remember Clyde Woodward saying to me once we were doing something, a drill, and. He came up to me and he says, where would you get that drill? And I said, I made it up. I sat down and said this. And he says, shit, I hate when I don't think of something. He said, you know, <laughs> he was of the same mind. He, he, he was annoyed if, if somebody else thought of something that he didn't think of. But believe me, there are people going to do that. So, um, yeah, you know, constantly, if you're passionate, you'll constantly keep chipping away and looking. So I'll have a notebook full of notes on the weekend after the Six Nations games. Some, you know, and that's their mind. I don't, don't else has to see them. That's why I take it out of it, you know. So that inquisitiveness as a coach and the passion to constantly keep learning, 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 you never know enough. And, and then what I like, what I always wanted to be achieved as a coach is be innovative. So take all this and do something different that nobody expected. I mean, to me, I always wanted to be. Coach, that if someone's playing your team, they're worried that what are they going to do today? What are they going to pull out of the hat today that we haven't seen? They're actually worried playing because they're not sure where we're going to go at them. Maybe you found a weakness they didn't know they had, and that's what it's all about, really. Coaching a team, particularly, what's the weakness of the opposition? Build your game plan on their weaknesses. So the opposition give you a game plan, and this is something I know the Irish players struggle with at the very start. Is I remember dricko saying at one time, there's that. We've got a different game plan for every game. And I said, yeah, because we've got a different opposition. You know, the, the big mistake here is we did this this week. Now, I'm talking about the very top end of the game. We did this this week, and it worked great. We won. Let's do it again next week. No. <laughs> no. The first, maybe. Let's see if, what, if that's part of what beats the next team. But it might not be. The other team might be a different way to beat them. And that's tough because you're constantly throwing new game plans and new wrinkles and new, At players, and they have to work very hard. So yeah, that's that would be me of constantly push, push, push. You know.
0: No, I like that, and uh, having the open mind piece is, yeah, it's it's easy say, but it's not easy do. Um, Last, if you have passion,
1: if you have passion, Stephen, you'll always be looking for more information.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. I fully agree. Um, So last question for you, Eddie. Uh, What are your top tips for a developing coach? And again, I know we probably. T- Touch on an awful lot, but maybe in a way I just something. told you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. be passionate. passionate. Keep, Minded, keep
1: learning, right. keep innovating, keep trying things. Yeah. And if you don't want to do that, maybe you know, coaching that particular sport isn't for you. Maybe another sport might light your fire a bit better. But yeah. rugby is my, what my bonfire saw, then, and that's not going to change.
0: Yeah, no, listen, Eddie, it's been fantastic having you on. There's so many takeaways for people listening. Um I, I love the way you talked about uh that you weren't afraid to listen and learn from others from a very uh your early coaching career. Um embracing maybe not the uh not your, your expertise by going to be that forwards coach very early on, the, the importance you put on planning and, permit and preparation and that feedback from players is really interesting and I think a lot of people will be able to take that practical example uh, and then being open-minded and, and to, to helping people maximise their potential and even listening to the fella at 11 o'clock on a Saturday night in the pub after a game because he could give you a little gold nugget. So uh, there'll be plenty of people to be able to take that one on board, Eddie. Thank you very much.